This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, efforts to teach peace to school-age youngsters. First, a man who found the strength to forgive after the murder of his son and channel his energy into teaching empathy and nonviolence to school kids. If you accept that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. Later, a Seattle program that connects young people from classrooms across the globe. I met her and she was kind of quiet. I didn't really know. I thought maybe it's the norm to be quiet from South Africa. I wasn't quite sure, but right off the bat I could tell it was going to be pretty cool. And a journalist turned teacher on a one-man crusade to bring peace studies to our schools. It's much easier to teach a child to be peaceful than to repair a violent adult. I think education is the way to do it. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're about to hear from Azim Kamisa, a former international businessman from San Diego, California. Mr. Kamisa tells Peace Talks Radio host Carol Boss his story of personal peacemaking, interpersonal peacemaking, and community peacemaking all in one. The story began with the end of the life of Azim Kamisa's 20-year-old son, Tarek. My son was a sophomore student at San Diego State University. He's a good art student, and he worked weekends as a pizza delivery man. And on January 21st, 1995, uh, it was his turn to make a delivery uh, at a place not very far from where he went to school. And he knocked on several doors, uh, found out nobody had ordered the pizzas, So he came to the car, and he put the pizzas in the trunk. He climbed in the driver's seat, and as he was about to leave, uh, four youth gang members approached him. Three of them were 14-year-old, and the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old, gave a 9-millimeter gun to a 14-year-old, and as my son was trying to leave the scene, gave the order... Bust him bone. Bone was the 14-year-old gang nickname, and he fired one round, which uh, entered my son's body uh, through the left armpit. It traveled across the upper part of his chest. It actually came out of the right armpit, but it was fatal. And my son, Tariq, died drowning in his own blood a couple of minutes later. In the months following the shooting, Azim Kamisa approached Plez Felix, the grandfather and legal guardian of the 14-year-old shooter, Tony Hicks. Kamisa forgave the family, founded the Tark Kamisa Foundation, or TKF, and invited Plez Felix to join him to take a message of breaking the cycle of violence into the schools. In the first of a two-part program on Peace Talks Radio, we look at programs and people that are trying to bring a message of nonviolence and peacemaking into elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. Again, Carol Boss with Azim Kamisa, whose son Tarek was murdered that January 1995 night in San Diego. Well, one can only imagine or cannot imagine um, what your family went through. And, of course, there was lots of grief Did you, even if just momentarily, have any thoughts of all of, of, which would be totally understandable, of anger, of revenge, of retribution? Not today. My grief was too overwhelming. As I said, it was like a nuclear bomb that had gone off in my heart. I've never felt pain that was this excruciating. Um, I don't have family in in San Diego. I live by myself. And my best friend was by my side, Dan, and he said to me, whoever these kids are that did this to Tariq, I hope they fry in hell. And I said to him, I don't feel that way. I see that there are victims at both ends of the gun. And at that stage, I was angry. and But I wasn't angry at the kids. I think I was angry at society, at American society. I felt we had failed our responsibility to our kids. Uh, 
because they join gangs to get respect, protection, or belonging, that we must do more. So these kids do not have to join gangs. So I've written several um, articles, and I've also written a book, and I have voiced my anger, but not to the kid who actually took my son's life, but to society as a whole. I read in an article, I think it was on the... um website of your foundation that, oh, a couple of months after Tariq's death, that you drove to Mammoth Mountain in Southern California. You were going to spend a few days in solitude and and reflect. Can you tell us what came of that experience on the mountain for you? Well, according to the Sufi tradition, I'm a practicing Muslim in the Sufi tradition, which is a metaphysical interpretation of Islam. Uh, We have uh, uh, prayers at the funeral, 10 days, 30 days, 40 days, uh, and prayers every year at the anniversary. But the most significant prayers are the 40-day prayers. And at the 40-day prayers, I was counseled by my spiritual mentor that according to the Sufi tradition, that ends the grieving period. I was told that the spirit or the soul of the departed person stays in close proximity for the 40 days which are allocated for grieving, and after 40 days, the soul moves to a new consciousness in preparation of its forward journey. Because souls do not die. I like to think of my son Tariq not dead, but at home or in a different dimension. And, and I was counseled that excessive grieving by friends and family members after the 40 days will impede the soul's journey. I was counseled that um, uh, instead of grieving, I should do good deeds because good deeds done in the name of the departed are spiritual currency and provide high-octane fuel to the departed soul for their forward journey. And it was in Mammoth, which actually was in uh, about three and a half months after Tariq died, that I I got the inspiration to start a foundation uh, named after him, because by nature, a non-profit foundation does good deeds. And I thought that the enemy here was not the killer of my son. Rather, it was the societal forces that forced a young African-American man into a gang at the age of 11. And to prove himself to the gang, he killed my son. That if I was able to solve that problem where kids would not have to join gangs to get respect, protection, or belonging, then we would improve society. What happened to um, Tony, the, um, the young man who killed your son? He basically, along with the other three kids, they were all uh, reprimanded uh, within days. Uh, uh, the tragedy happened on a Saturday. They were arrested on Wednesday. He was uh, then the first 14-year-old in the state of California to be tried as an adult. Mm-hmm. It took four, it took 18 months to decide whether he should be tried as an adult or not. I started the foundation nine months after Tariq died. And soon after I started the foundation, I reached out in forgiveness to his grandfather and guardian. And as you are aware, we worked together. So I chose to forgive instead of uh, revenge. And when I met the grandfather, what I told him is what I see here is uh, victims at both ends of the gun. I told him, I see that he and I both lost a son. My son was a victim of his grandson, and the grandson was a victim of society, of American society. And I quite frankly felt, as an American, I'm a naturalized American, but I am an American. I felt that I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life, and quite frankly, so should every caring American. And uh, we essentially have been together now for 12 years. The foundation just finished its 12th anniversary. And it just amazes me how well the foundation has done. Yeah, let's talk about some of the programs on the website for the TKF Foundation, the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. It reads, Empowering Kids, Saving Lives teaching peace, and there are several school-based violence prevention education programs. Can you um, talk to us about 
one of them, which is Violence Impact Forum. I know it's for students, what, from the fourth to ninth grade? Yes. Uh, the Violence Impact Forum uh, is a live assembly. It, uh, we have a video that uh, uh, we have uh, developed where the murder scene has been reenacted. Uh, the kids first look at the video and then uh, uh, Plez and I are introduced and, uh, and we are on stage live and we are introduced, this man's grandson killed this man's son and here they are as brothers. And then I give my testimony, uh, Plez gives his testimony. We then have uh, panel members, a male and a female, uh, both ex-gang members, and they all have powerful stories. And then we engage the kids into a Q&A. It's a very intensive, immersive, hard-hitting, reality-based encounter. And it just amazes me that there is no fidgeting, it's pin-drop silence. And, uh, and very often I'll ask the audience, how many of you have lost family members as a result of violence? And it just breaks my heart that three-quarters of the hands go up. And uh, we, we, have, uh, we have six key messages that we try and impart in these uh, live, live assemblies. Yes, and one of them is you can make good and nonviolent choices. So in, in this era of um, media and video games with images that are, that are filled with guns and violence that are so pervasive in this culture and are so attractive to youth, how is making good choices and nonviolent choices presented in a way that draws them in, that is appealing to young students and something that they want to actually do? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, you're right. The violence is extremely pervasive. We are by far the most violent first world nation in the world. By the time our kids get to grade A, they've seen 100,000 images of violence. But I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. Nobody was born violent. None of our children were born violent. But if you accept that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. But who teaches it? At TKF, we do teach it. And let me answer your question by an example. Uh, after the Violence Impact Forum, we do plant a garden, by the way, which is a very healing thing uh, for the kids to plant. We plant a tree in memory of my son and all the other family members the kids have lost, and the kids plant flowering plants in memory of somebody they have lost. And this becomes a, a altar for them to go to. It also becomes a very visible presence of our program on campus and reminds them of the key messages we taught. After that, we have another program called Ending the Cycle of Violence, where we have created six vignettes, multimedia uh, vignettes, around our six key messages now, one example would be uh, we have a lesson on empathy. Uh, and empathy is a big word in some of these uh, uh, middle schools, so we usually have a theme. And the theme on empathy is I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes, and you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes. And this was a seventh grader. His name was Alex in seventh grade and had all the signs, the sway, the encounter, the colors, you could see a wannabe gang member written all over this kid. And, uh, and somehow this lesson on empathy got to him. And used, then the homework is that they have to practice empathy for the whole week. And the week after, before they get their lesson on compassion, they are asked to share uh, their homework on empathy. And when the teacher asks who wants to share the lesson on empathy, it was Alex. Now remember, this is a kid that's the most disruptive kid in the class. And what he shared that was very powerful, and what he said is, I was walking in my hood last weekend, and this kid gave me a dirty, angry look. The rules of the hood are, if a kid gives you a dirty, angry look, you go beat him up. But because you have taught me that you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes, and I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes, I walked up to this kid and said, why are you giving me a dirty look? So the kid said to me, I'm not giving you a dirty look. I'm angry. 
because my brother was shot and killed last night. So what did you do, Alex? I held his hand. Hmm. We cried together. I gave him a hug. I, I told him, I know how you feel because I lost my uncle six months ago. One lesson. And you think that this kid walks the hood every weekend. Tell me you can't teach nonviolence. You see the power of this. What, what could have been mm-hmm. a, a fight became a compassionate action, you know? Uh, one of the key messages we teach is that from conflict, love and unity are possible. I talk about this. You know, I talk about the fact that uh, I would never have met Ples had his grandson not taken the life of my son. Now, Ples is African-American. My roots are Eastern. You know, Azim is a Persian East Indian name. I'm a Muslim. Ples grew up as a Christian, and he's as close to me as my own brother. We hang out. In fact, I'm having dinner with him tonight. So uh, he's met my entire family. I've met his entire family. We have this love for each other. I cannot even put it in words. I was telling him he helps me carry my load. I help him carry his load. You know, we are water bearers for each other. Now, I always tell people, you know, I want you to notice something here. This is not Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. meeting Gandhi. This is an investment banker meeting a Green Beret. Ples was a Green Beret. The point I'm trying to make is if he and I can do it, we can all do it. And I think that's very teachable because uh, the president of the foundation, his name is Mark Fackler, he always says that if TKF is successful in meeting its mandate, the only outcome can be world peace because these kids are our future leaders, and if we can teach them now that from conflict, you create a brother, you create a sister, you create love, you create unity, and you apply the principles of nonviolent peacemaking and forgiveness, maybe someday we'll have world peace. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, school programs for peace. We'll have more after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today's program looks at efforts to teach peace, compassion, and global understanding in our schools. Later, a look at teachers and programs in Washington, D.C. and Seattle, Washington. Right now, we're talking with Azim Kamisa, director of the Tar Kamisa Foundation, a nonprofit organization that takes programs on nonviolence and forgiveness into schools. The foundation memorializes Mr. Kamisa's son, Tarek, who was delivering pizzas in San Diego in January 1995 when he was shot and killed by a 14-year-old gang member who had been challenged to prove himself to his gang by firing a gun into Tarek's car. Mr. Kamisa joined with Ples Felix, the grandfather and guardian of the shooter, to create the foundation and develop the school programs. Again, our host, Carol Boss, with Azim Kamisa. So is the violence impact form a one-time assembly that the school attends? Yes. The violence impact forum is during school hours. Ending the cycle of violence is also during school hours. After school hours, we have what we call the Circle of Peace program. We have peace ambassadors that are selected in every 
um, every school we go to, and and the circle of peace is made up of these peace ambassadors. So when, and their mandate is to promote nonviolence on campus. They even preempt fights. If there is a fight, they become peer mediators. We also have a program for parents. Let me ask you about um, some more about Tony Hicks, the the fourteen um, year old who killed your son. He's, as from what I understand, he's still in prison. In fact, you actually met him in prison. Can you just describe that experience for us? Yes, it was uh, five years after the tragedy. Uh, it took many hours of meditation. I met his grandfather and guardian nine months, but I think it's a whole new equation to come eyeball to eyeball with the person who actually pulled the trigger on your son. But I could tell uh, when I first met him, he was 19 years old. I was thinking as I'm walking up the steps of the prison to meet him that I'm not going to like this kid. He took the life of my one and only son. And when I met him at 19, I was quite surprised. He did not portray typical attitudes of a 19-year-old in our culture. On the contrary, he was remorseful, well-mannered, soft-spoken, and I could see that my forgiveness of him had also transformed him. And quite frankly, when I looked in his eyes, and I looked deeply in his eyes, I did not see a murderer there. I saw another soul, you know, just like me. And I think to myself, you know, when you think about our culture, and he was uh, 11 when he joined a gang. He ran away at the age of 14. The same day he ran away from his house where he was loved by his grandfather, joined his homeboys. They drank a lot of alcohol, smoked a lot of drugs, a lot of pot. And when they get got hungry, they wanted to jack the pizza delivery man. And somebody, you know, put a gun in his hand. And you take a 14-year-old in our society who is angry, who has run away, who is now high on alcohol and drugs, and you give him a gun. I mean, is that a recipe for disaster or what? And then you think, how often does that happen? It happens a lot. So, you know, not only did I forgive him, I went the extra step by telling him, Tony, when you come out of prison, you have a job at the Tari Kamisa Foundation, and you can come work with your grandfather and me. So I gave him uh, an opportunity to redeem himself. And what's amazing about this story, he's, he's exactly done that. And we just turned 27. His birthday is September 22nd. And uh, two years ago, he aced his GED in prison at the 60 percentile, self-taught himself. He's now doing counseling courses, learning Spanish, because we work with a lot of Hispanics here five books a month, and this kid used to hate to read, and he knows that he can't be about gangbanging and about drugs and violence if he's going to have to, if he's going to come and work with the foundation teaching kids about the principles of peacemaking and nonviolence. And I have written a, a, a letter to our famous, what we call him, the governor in California, uh, to see if he would consider commuting Tony's sentence because I would hire him, and I think he would serve society a lot better uh, working um, with the foundation, uh, trying to keep kids away from making the same fatal mistakes he did than basically just serving time uh, uh, in an adult prison. It seems to be pretty groundbreaking because in my research, I, I haven't really found much curriculum actually in the schools on teaching peace and nonviolence. And um, there seems to be still um, a lot of miles to go in terms of acceptance of that in, in the classroom. Yes, I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. The problem is the politics of it. Mm-hmm. And the problem is it's very difficult to change our education system, which quite frankly is archaic. The education system doesn't work. You know, we have uh, high school graduates that don't read at the sixth grade level. Uh, There is uh, tremendous violence in our schools, and how can our kids focus on education when they're always looking over their shoulders to see if somebody is going to stab them in the back? 
what we have learned, and we've been at this for 12 years now, we've reached a half a million kids live, and another 20 million have seen our programs via broadcast into the classroom, that we are definitely seeing evidence that not only are we changing attitudes, we are actually changing behavior. So we need to teach it, and we need to fund it. Right now, we need to say this program shows result, we need to fund it. And it's not very expensive. I mean, we can do all of our six programs uh, in a school for $250 a child a school year. We are already spending $10,000 a year to provide free public education. At 10250 we could have our six programs in every classroom, in every school in the country, if funding was available. Now, look at the other side of it. If these kids end up in prison, like the kid that took my son's life ended up, the cost of incarceration is $80,000 a year to incarcerate a male youth. So you don't have to be an investment banker to say, you know, if you put $250 in prevention and save $80,000 on the other end, that is a good investment, you know. You've been listening to Azim Kamisa in conversation with Carol Boss today on Peace Talks Radio. Mr. Kamisa is the founder of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to breaking the epidemic of youth violence through school-based nonviolence programs. The foundation was formed in 1995 to memorialize Mr. Kamisa's son, Tariq, who was shot and killed by 14-year-old gang member Tony Hicks in January of that year in San Diego. Kamisa forgave Hicks' family and invited his guardian and grandfather, Ples Felix, to partner with him in the foundation. Now Kamisa says Tony Hicks himself can have a job with the foundation when his prison term expires. You can find links to the TKF Foundation as well as other resources on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. We continue our look at efforts to teach peace in the schools, this time on Peace Talks Radio. Later, a program in some Seattle schools called Bridges to Understanding connects young people from classrooms across the globe. But up next, a journalist turned teacher who's been on a one-man crusade to bring peace curriculum to schools in the Washington, D.C. area. From 1969 to 1997, Coleman McCarthy wrote columns for the Washington Post. In his years as a columnist and journalist, he had the opportunity to interview Nobel Peace Prize winners and other figures that he says inspired him in 1982 to begin teaching courses on nonviolence and the literature of peace in high schools and universities in the D.C. area. In 25 years, he's taught more than 7,000 students in his classes. He's edited two books for use in peace studies classes. And in 1985, he founded the Center for Teaching Peace, a nonprofit organization that helps schools begin or expand academic programs in peace studies. From his home in Washington, D.C., Coleman McCarthy spoke with Carol Boss. So, Coleman, I, I read this article about you. It was in Teacher Magazine in October 2003, and the opening passage reads, Coleman McCarthy knows an easy way to get people riled up. He merely suggests they consider peace. What is that about? The, the idea of peace riling people up. Well, we live in a society where the word peace is looked on with some often negative um, spin on it. Uh, uh, peace means you're not patriotic. Peace means you're passive. Peace means you like to hug trees at high tide and full moon. Uh, <laughs> yet, it, each of us in our heart is yearning for peace. All governments claim they want peace. So I began to wonder, if that's the case, why are we teaching ourselves how to go about it? And so I thought the only place to find out is to go into a school and teach a course in, in the philosophy of peace, the history of peace, the methods of nonviolence, uh, the philosophy of pacifism, and see whether that could be taught and whether it could be learned and whether students would be receptive to it. Let's talk about um, your experience in the, in the classroom. Uh, would you be able to articulate um, your philosophy of, of, of teaching peace, your, your method of teaching? Sure. We have two textbooks, which I edited, and I spent a few years uh, gathering up all the best as, uh, 
essays I could find about pacifism and nonviolence. And one book is called Solutions to Violence, which has about 16 chapters and, and really good, good material. Gandhi, Dorothy Day, A.J. Musty, Joan Baez, all the great people, uh, the Berrigans, all the great peacemakers. Uh, Strength Through Peace is the other book. And that's about the ideas and ideals of nonviolence. And, 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 and my center uh, markets those books. We supply schools all around the country uh, with the, uh, textbooks, uh, those two textbooks. So you read the literature and find out that there are other ways to solve your conflicts without using fists, guns, armies, bombs, and nukes. It's just one course. I mean, uh, you go to school, you go eight years in elementary school, four years of high school. Would we ever think of putting anybody through a 12 years of education with no math course or no course in science or history or English? You get it every year. So just to get one course out of 12 years, it takes all this pushing and persuading people to get it, to get it in, into the curriculum. But I lecture all around the country to get school. I do student assemblies. I do teacher training workshops to interest uh, schools and administrators on the importance of teaching peace to our students. Because unless we teach our students peace, somebody else will teach them violence. Mm -hmm. How do you respond when there's a challenge or a call for the other side, a call for balance to um, sure. teaching peace? Sure. Students come into my class already indoctrinated in the philosophy of violence. We have a violent government that believes in invading countries. We're the world's largest weapons dealer. We have a Supreme Court that advocates executing people on death row. We have corporations polluting the environment, which is environmental violence. We have domestic violence. We have verbal violence. We have gender-based violence. We have racial violence. So my class is the other side. <laughs> so they're getting the violent argument every place they go. You know, I would imagine that perhaps at the beginning when people enter, young people enter your classes, there might be a, some degree of skepticism on their part. Is that, is that true? And, and how do you deal with that? Oh, sure. They, come, they often come from dysfunctional families. Mm -hmm. I had a student one time, oh, we spent about three weeks reading Gandhi. At the end of three weeks, she was, she was leaving class one morning and said, this has all been fine, but you know, I go home to a war zone. My parents are fighting each other, either verbally or physically. How do I, how do I stop that war? Well, good question. Maybe if, maybe if we'd had a mother and father when they were in school and taught them how to deal with their basic conflicts, they wouldn't be fighting so much. It's much easier to teach a child to be peaceful uh, than to repair a violent adult. So either we, either we educate before uh, people have conflicts or, or, we, or we intervene after with more violence. So I'm for the first, I think education is the way to do it. So that's where the peace movement needs to be. I'm all for anti-war marches, but the marches don't do it. You go into classrooms and systematically educate people. I think that's the best way to go about it and the most effective way and the most moral way. What do you consider a successful, maybe I should say, valuable day at school? When, this, when parents call me or see me and say, you know, we often discuss your class at dinner time. If, if the students will do that with their families, then you know that they're, they're interested, they're involved. How many students go home and talk about algebra with their parents? <laughs> mm -hmm. I doubt very many. But they do go home and talk about their conflicts, they talk about things we talk about with the class, because it, 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 it's relevant to their lives. Everybody wants to lead a peaceful life. And so when you can talk about that in the classroom and have that, and have that discussion continued at home, that's when you know you've done something. Can you think of a, a, of a story offhand of a, a, a student who um, gave you feedback who's in your class that was 
kind of striking for you or, or, or even surprising? I had a student in my class many years ago, a boy named Jim McGovern. I had him in college, and Jim was a fine boy, but he studied too much. He's making too many A's. I said, Jim, you got to get out. I sent him down. I suggested he go work at one of the, at a women's shelter here in town that takes in homeless women, many from El Salvador, from, uh, from Central America. He went there, and he started to talk with the women from Salvador. At the time, Jim McGovern was working for Congressman uh, Joseph Moakley from Boston, Massachusetts. And he'd go back and tell Joe Moakley about the women from El Salvador. This was in the mid-1980s when there was a civil war in El Salvador. Jim McGovern began taking Congress people down to El Salvador to figure out what was going on and why is the U.S. supplying weapons to the government. Uh, Jim McGovern helped inform Congress of what was happening. He also decided that he was just as smart as members of Congress are. He ran for Congress, was defeated the first time, came back and ran again, and won. He's now a member of Congress, has been there for the last, I think, eight years, and is one of the leading Democrats to bring the troops home from Iraq. That's a former student of mine of whom, um, who, of whom I am tremendously proud, and I, and I remember Jim with great affection. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting how the whole idea of peace studies seems to be so threatening to people and so troubling um, to folks. Well, I was at a school board meeting a few years ago, and, and I said, we ought to get peace studies courses into, into the county's 22 high schools. And finally, at the end, one of the school board members said, well, these are all good ideas, but you know, you kept using that phrase, peace studies. I have a little trouble with that, he said. I said, what's your problem? Well, the problem is uh, the word studies is okay, but that word peace is going to upset people out here in the county. Uh, (laughs) That's where we are. So peace education is in its infancy. We're just starting out now, really, and it's very hard to crack schools with this idea because the teachers are so demoralized right now with all this testing mania going on. Teaching to the test, get the test scores up in math and science. So a course like mine is looked on as kind of a, kind of a gourmet item. It's a nice idea, but, uh, but we've got to stick with these so-called essentials. And I argue that nothing is more essential uh, 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 than to how to turn around our world from a violent world to a peaceful world. But that's, uh, that thinking has not really been adopted by too many people. But uh, I keep pushing away, and, and uh, there is some progress. Um, in 1970, we only had one school, one, only one college in America was offering a degree program in peace studies. And now there's about 70. There's over 200 colleges offering a minor or a concentration. So there is progress in a small way. Um, so we keep trying to move it ahead. I imagine there are teachers and others out there, concerned parents, concerned citizens, who want to advocate for peace education in their school systems and teachers who want to incorporate some elements of peace into their classrooms and are feeling isolated and alone. Can the Center for Teaching Peace offer advice and support to all of these people? Well, that's what we do. That's one of our main functions, helping people get these courses into the schools. I work with teachers, principals, school boards, families, parents, students, uh, to persuade the school officials to, uh, to begin to uh, take seriously peace education. People have a right to have these courses in place. I mean, uh, public schools are paid by property taxes, and so you got to go. You got to go make your demands. I tell students uh, that great line from Peter Kropotkin, the great Russian pacifist. He told students, "My advice is to think about the kind of world you want to live and work in. What you need uh, to build that world, and demand that your teachers teach you that." You had a student a while back, a few years ago, at the University of Maryland, and you tell about him writing a 13-word paper, and that really stuck with you. 
I asked the class one time uh, for our final exam, I asked them, I said, make up your own questions and supply the answers. Uh, the question he asked was, why are we violent but not illiterate? Answer, we were taught to read. Uh, that's, almost, that's almost pure Buddhist. It's, it's so pure. In other words, we were taught to read in school. Therefore, we are not illiterate. Mm -hmm. We were not taught uh, to be peacemakers. Therefore, we are violent. It summed it all up in just 13 words. That boy went on to join Teach for America. He's now a journalist and, uh, and is doing very well with his talents. That's Coleman McCarthy, author of I'd Rather Teach Peace. For more about him and his Center for Teaching Peace, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and next we go to Seattle, Washington, for another peace teaching initiative right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, on the radio and on the web at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and next we go to Seattle, Washington, where teacher Lori Markowitz manages two programs, one called Worlds Apart, Hearts Together, and the other called Bridges to Understanding. Both work in some Seattle schools to promote global understanding and compassion to students. Bridges to Understanding has Seattle school kids connecting with their counterparts in Thailand or South Africa, swapping digital photographs and stories over the Internet, and then some get to meet live and in person. Lori Markowitz is in Seattle's KUOW studios along with Talea Thurman, a student who participated in one of the programs. First, Lori Markowitz talking with Carol Boss. Bridges is about becoming global citizens and uh, better understanding other parts of the world, but also building relationships and getting to know and becoming friends with someone in Peru or uh, a new friend in the township. And it's it's getting to know that someone that lives in the township is actually has a lot of uh, similar and uh, shares many of the same desires and, and wishes in their life as you do here. And that's what uh, we found that has been so remarkable with young people is they say, wow, I actually, I, I didn't realize that Mafeka and I both have the same uh, interest in music or or in dance. And, and then they understand the fact that they are really connected, even though they're across the world from each other. So what are the goals and the hopes for this program? So the hopes are, first of all, that we understand that we're all interconnected. And that what happens here in the United States or what happens in South Africa is just as important to the students here in America as well as the students in South Africa. So that we are interconnected and that uh, the responsibility of our world is really um, a collective. And um, it's, it's something that all of us share together. We see that students then, once they understand that there is even uh, just exposing them to other parts of the world. I've had students say, I, I didn't even know that apartheid exists in South Africa or that there were students that uh, had the same hopes and aspirations as I do. And so it's just, again, creating awareness and then moving from that awareness onto building relationships and then with the hopes that one will become actually active in making the world a better place. 
And the project that you've been um, very involved with, uh, what you mentioned before, the Worlds Apart, Hearts Together, that that goes beyond the interaction of the Internet. It's a face-to-face program. You have brought students over from South Africa for several weeks, and they have paired up with students from Washington Middle School in Seattle. Essentially, the program is allowing the students to come together. They are students that come from the townships of South Africa. They've never, ever been on an airplane before, so it's the first time they're leaving their country and often first time they're even leaving their township. And they come here, and they are paired up with host families. They spend three weeks in this country, and they shadow their host family student, and then they also engage in several programs during their stay, which are around South Africa, the lessons that we've learned from South Africa, particularly pertaining to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there's a big focus on uh, reconciliation and what that meant in South Africa, what it means today. And as well, then the American students are asked to look inside themselves in their own community, in their own hallways, in their school and to think about how can we apply the lessons that we've learned from South Africa here in our own backyard. Well, also joining us is Talea Thurman, who um, has been a student in this program, and you hosted um, someone from South Africa, didn't you? Yes, I did. Her name was Spikazi, was that it? Yeah. What interests you most about it? Um, I think mainly the cross-cultural exchange, just learning so much about a culture that I knew so little about. Yeah, you probably had an opportunity to study some cultures in 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 school, but um, what, you're always learning about the cultures and never had the opportunity to, to learn it from someone who's actually part of that culture. Yeah, and that's what makes it so much better. Um, you read textbooks and you can reread them and you could probably recite them by heart, but you never really understand what you're reading until you can actually sit down with somebody who's from there and learn firsthand what their experience is. So what would, what would you say was unique about this experience for you? Was there anything that really made it special for you? Um, really, the entire thing in itself was special, but I think one thing that really stood out was, I think as Lori said before, um, you meet this person and you have no idea that they share a lot of the same interests as you, but I love acting and Spikazi, she apparently likes being in front of people, kind of, and so I think that was a pretty cool thing, just learning that we had so much in common and we could sit down and have a conversation and like and be talking about the same things and be able to follow each other, but yet she's from halfway around the world. Well, Lori mentioned a couple of the issues that were covered in the lessons, um, certainly truth and reconciliation. Um, it sounds like you learned about apartheid. Which ones in particular were most interesting to you? Well, I'd have to say apartheid as a whole or just the history of South Africa. Um, I had never really known a lot about it before. And so before they came, we did a lot of we did a lot of geography surrounding South Africa and a lot of uh, cultural studies. And we read the Caffer Boy book, and I think that was a real big eye-opener. I had no idea. Well, I had a little bit of idea, but after reading Mr. Mark Mathabane's accounts of what happened, it I think that taught me a lot. I think it changed most of my thinking, and it had the, one of the biggest impacts from the entire program. Did you feel that this program uh, gave you an idea or taught you about um, how to help create peace in the world? I I think it did, definitely, because I think one of the big reasons there isn't a lot of peace or the world's not so peaceful quite yet is because you don't really understand. You can't really put yourself in the shoes of another person. And so you hear people like every day like, yeah, I want to help that person, but they don't know how. And so I say there's a lot of willingness to do it, but just not really knowing how. And so... When you meet this other person from somebody else and you can understand them and where they come from and and know what they really need, I think that would bring about. I think one thing that reoccurred to me a lot of times was peace through understanding. And so when you understand what they're going through, I think it would be like the stepping stones for world peace. So, Lori, I wanted to ask you, what do you see in the Seattle students that um, perhaps makes you feel that 
the program is nurturing a, a culture of peace. Well, I would have to definitely add on to what Talia said. There's no question that I see a tremendous amount of empathy coming from these students. In fact, I had a mother who uh, stopped me one day. I was just in the supermarket, and she said, excuse me, are you the woman who was uh, running the South African program? And I said, "Uh, yes, oh, no, what did I do? And she said, thank you. Thank you so much. My son told me he will never complain again. He feels like he understands the privilege he has living in this country and that he is determined to make a difference in the world and that he understands now that he's empowered to do so. So not only do they empathize with others, but they understand that they have to take action. And we all know that if everyone just gave a little bit, there's no question that the world will be a better place. And I'm also thinking about um, several of the events we had around um, helping raise money for the South Africans to come here. And, for example, we had a car wash, and I had probably maybe close to 100 kids that came to help wash cars with the South African kids. So they all did it together. It was just a beautiful day of coming together as one group, raising the money so these South African kids could come here and also go home and have a little, uh, you know, a little extra in their pockets so that they could help with their school fees. And I just felt so rewarded by that. And that now, still, to this day, when I see students, they ask me, what can I do? How can I help? What grade are you in now, um, Talia, and how old are you? I am a freshman at Garfield, and I am 14. So do you have a sense of what you want to work towards in, for when you're an adult, what you want to do in the world? Has this given you a perspective on that at this point? It has. I think I just told Laura that I was pretty envious of her job when we were on our way here. So I think definitely striving towards, striving towards world peace, that, that's definitely something that's I've been looking into, not even just as a profession, but I, I like it a lot as volunteer work mm-hmm. and just doing every little thing that I can, like whether it means having a little bake sale or something and sending it to to like genocide victims in Rwanda or something. Did you, did you think about that before you got involved with um, Bridges to Understanding? On a smaller scale, I think it was something that came across my mind as something I could do maybe when I wasn't so busy or maybe tomorrow, but tomorrow never came. And I think tomorrow definitely has come now. I, mm. That's something that i am become pretty passionate about. So, Lori, um, it sounds like there are schools then that are open to this program in Seattle. Is there any resistance at all? Well, and that's the other thing that I see. I see that uh, the students, the teachers, schools are very hungry for this kind of education. And I think building a culture of peace is is becoming more and more apparent how critical that is. And it's not just about academic standards, but it's also about creating global citizens. And this program allows to foster that. And so um, I see a great uh, desire for um, this kind of education in the schools. Lori Markowitz and Talia Thurman, talking with Carol Boss about Seattle's Bridges to Understanding and Worlds Apart Hearts Together programs. For links to details of the program and more about initiatives to teach peace, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also order CDs, sign up for a newsletter or podcast, and make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep talk of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution on the radio and on the web. Really, support from listeners like you is crucial to the survival of this special series. So we hope you'll look for more details at peacetalksradio.com. We receive some support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, Eyecatcher Creative Photography and Custom Framing at the Fair Plaza Shopping Center in Albuquerque, and from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ali Adelman. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio.